Tonight's reading is taken from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, and this can be found on page 1050 of the Church Bibles. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we've just sung, saying to one another and before you that we are willing to listen to you speak to us and obey you. Well, we pray that now, that indeed we would acknowledge that in the Bible, the passage that's been read to us, we hear your voice. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, your voice would get into our hearts and our minds and our lives so that we are willing to mould our lives according to what you speak to us. In your name, amen. Uh, I'm aware that uh, quite a few of you will not uh, really know much about uh, me. Uh, I'm not anybody particularly special, just an ordinary Christian person, but I do happen to live in the Middle East uh, where I serve the Christian gospel as uh, a member of a team seeking to help train uh, new leaders for the Christian church. So uh, may I begin with uh, a, a short story that is very relevant to the Bible passage that we have uh, heard uh, read to us tonight, and which I trust will be open on our laps in front of us as we go through it. Some of you have heard this story already, I think, if you've uh, read my newsletter. A number of weeks ago, perhaps it's a couple of months ago now, uh, a Western mission worker was driving, minding his own business in Amman, the capital city of Jordan, and uh, he had come to some sort of stop, I don't know the circumstances, Nothing had happened, but suddenly a pedestrian saw his car and started running full tilt at this car and threw himself against the front of it as hard as he possibly could. 
He then lay down in the road. This may seem a very bizarre thing to take place on the streets of the capital city of Jordan. Uh, the mission worker got out of his car and tried to remonstrate with this man and ask him what on earth he thought he was doing. He was a local Arab uh, member of the population. And uh, the uh, gentleman on the ground uh, was screaming in apparent agony and uh, shouting that he had been hit by this car and demanded to be taken to hospital. At this point, uh, after some more argument, the mission worker made a very terrible mistake. He drove away. This he should not have done. He should have called the police then and there and also called for help from his mission agency. But he didn't dream that this was anything other than a highly bizarre incident that would have no follow-up. He was wrong. Uh, he was arrested the following morning on his doorstep, uh, put into prison, uh, for one night when he learnt that the person, the victim, the alleged victim, had uh, filed a charge against him asking for 100,000 dinars, which is 100,000 pounds in compensation for having mown him down on the street. At this point, you may think, uh, on behalf of this poor fellow, that you're shaking your fists in indignation at the injustice of this uh, apparent, uh, uh, not apparent, this actual deception by this man who was clearly seeking to milk a rich Westerner, because they think we're all rich out there, uh, of a lot of money by this silly pretense. And the man had made this terrible mistake, which means that his insurance company wouldn't help him. Uh, he didn't stay at the scene of the accident. And if you drive away from an accident, the law deems you to be guilty. Uh, he has not got yet any happy ending. Uh, and there is no ending to this story <clears throat> that I can tell you at the moment. Maybe eventually there will be, but it's likely that the courts will try him and he is due to appear in court and that he will be found guilty because he has no defense and he will have to pay a very large amount of money. I would think there's not one single one of us here who likes injustice. I would think there's not one single one of us here who has not had some experience of people being, at least in our estimation, unjust to us. Somebody has wronged us, and unless we can summon up the most extraordinary quantity of graciousness and mercy and forgiveness, we find ourselves shaking our fist at the injustice of it. Well, would you park that thought, if I may tantalize you uh, for a little while, uh, and I will come back to it after we've begun to have a look at this uh, parable in the Gospel of Luke at the end of chapter 16. And uh, I will give a bit of an introduction, if I may, because it's a strange story that uh, imagines a scene happening in the afterlife of some sort after two people have died, a rich man 
and a poor man. And as uh, we heard read, there is an enormous gulf between the rich man in the afterlife and the poor man. There are other differences, as you'll remember. The rich man is in agony. He is uh, suffering hugely. He is so desperate that even a single drop of water would do something to help him, and he pleads just for a drop of water. On the other hand, the other man, uh, Lazarus, given a name rather unusually in a parable, Lazarus is in a state of great happiness. He has been welcomed onto that side of the great chasm by none other than Abraham. Abraham, incidentally, is very significant, as I will uh, show in just a moment. We don't know why Lazarus gets a name, but we do know what the name means. It means the one who is helped by God. That's significant, don't you think? In some of the older versions of the Bible, the rich man got a name as well, Dives. Some of you who are as old as I am will remember this. But actually, that was a mistake in translation because Dives is simply the old Latin word for a rich man. But what is the significance of Abraham? He is called here Father. Even the rich man acknowledges Abraham in verse 24. Hey, do open it, please, if you've somehow accidentally allowed your Bible to shut. We do need to look at this. Verse 24 of Luke chapter 16. He calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I wonder uh, if we know what is the significance of Abraham, and particularly that he is called Father. Well, if you know your Bibles, you'll know there's a lot of discussion about what it means to be a true son or child of Abraham. I'm just changing son to child there to acknowledge the fact there are a lot of ladies amongst us tonight. Uh, I'm sure you'll realize that in the ancient Near East, uh, gender equality had not reached the lengths that it has reached in our country here. And in any case, to be a son in those days was to be the inheritor, the heir, the one who is the heir of the one who has gone before. There's a lot of talk in the Bible about what it means to have Abraham as our father. In particular, the religious leaders of the time who come in for a lot of stick from the Bible writers and even more so from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the priesthood, the scribes, the teachers, uh, the rabbis, the Sadducees, they were all, in the estimation of Jesus, utterly self-righteous. In other words, they thought that they were the ones who are properly heirs of Abraham. Abraham was the great uh, under God and God's instigation, 
not because of Abraham being a hero, he wasn't, but because God put his finger on the life of Abraham and used him. Abraham was the great founder, as it were, of the uh, Jewish nation. Long before, for example, the great stories of the exodus of the people from slavery in Egypt, long before that were what we call the, the patriarchs of the Jewish religion, Abraham, Isaac, um, Jacob, Joseph, uh, about which many Bible stories will be remembered by many of us. Abraham was the great father, and he is singled out in the Bible for the one who is the archetype of trust in God. Abraham is a hero in the Bible for his faith or trust in God, that God would keep his promise. And if there's going to be a very big lesson for us here tonight, and I would like there to be, I really hope there will be, it's to raise this question, do I think God owes me, or do I think I owe God? That's the big question which I feel faces us, and not only actually in this passage, but all over the Bible from beginning to end. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests and the scribes and all of that lot, they were of the opinion that God owes them. They are the high and mighty. Luke, one of these four gospel writers, has penned his thoughts on this and the thoughts of the Lord Jesus many times already. Let me just read chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors, it's only a page back, so you can flip back and read it with me. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Is that not a picture of the sort of self-righteousness that sets itself above everybody else. And they thought that God owed them the prime place in his hierarchy. They were the bee's knees. They were the ones who had no faults, but they looked on everybody else, particularly those who were regarded in that culture as being particularly sinful. They regarded all of those others as the ones who were desperately in need. The Pharisees, simply by being religious leaders, held themselves to be deserving. God owes me. And the rich man in our story had a very similar attitude. He was a Jew in the story. He knew all the stories. He knew the history. He knew how God had rescued his nation from slavery in Egypt and led them into a promised land. He ought to have been on his knees every day in gratitude to God for his graciousness towards him and his people. But where is the God of this rich man? 
I'll tell you where his God is. It was in his pocket, in his bank account. That's where his God was. Incidentally, may I say at this point that there's nothing in this parable that makes out money or wealth to be evil and poverty to be a virtue. Uh, The Bible never speaks like this. It's not wrong to be rich, but it's wrong to be rich and worship it. That's the point. And so uh, Jesus, teaching this uh, parable, uh, picks out in the story a rich man and a poor man to make this point, not to make the point that being poor is somehow virtuous, and to be rich is somehow uh, a nasty thing to be, but rather to warn us that riches are a snare, and probably are a snare to every single one of us, even those of us who are poor. It's a snare to us because the temptation then for us is to be bitter about our poverty, to be envious, And it snared us, hasn't it? We might never be rich, but riches in other people's bank account rather than in our own have trapped us and caused us to think ill, either of society or even of God. But Lazarus clearly never fell into that trap. In this story, Lazarus, the one whom God helps, he has been welcomed into Abraham's bosom, is the the expression used. Uh, If you go and live in the Middle East, you'll quickly understand something of how this is relevant even amongst men, because they hug each other. Indeed, I very quickly had to learn to very graciously allow Arab people, to th- uh, men this is, to throw their arms around me. Uh, it was a bit of a surprise to start with. And then when I found that they quite often also kissed us, uh, there, 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 and there, mercifully not there, <laughs> It was even a greater surprise, and you get used to it. They are are tangible people, are the Arabs. Incidentally, just to warn you, if you ever go there, don't ever do it with a woman, or you'll be beaten up on the spot by the husband. Uh, Jesting aside, uh, where was I? (laughs) Lazarus had been welcomed into Abraham's bosom. It's as if Abraham sees him coming and uh, does what Arabs do to each other when they meet an old friend, threw his arms round him, hugged him, as it were. And I'm, I'm embellishing the story a bit, but you get the point. Why? Because Abraham was Lazarus's father. Clearly, Lazarus is there on that side of the gulf, not because he's poor, but because in his poverty he never raged against God. He was a true believer. He was a person of faith and trust in his God. 
It's not spelt out, but it's utterly clear, implicitly, from the way he has been welcomed by Abraham. Lazarus, the one whom God helps, written into his name, is the one who very clearly in his life knew that he was accountable to his God. Lazarus was the one for whom the cry of his heart was, I owe God. The rich man was in the other category, God owes me. And what is condemned here is not his riches, but that he did nothing by way of grace and mercy towards Lazarus, who lay with his sores at his gate. He proved his lack of faith in God by the way he did not mimic in his life the mercy and grace of God. And the Jewish people knew all about the mercy and grace of God. Compare him with a typical Islamic member of the Arabic race today. Maybe after all the years of dreadful violence in the Middle East, we wonder about the, the, the Muslims, the Islamic religion, seeing it perhaps as the hotbed of dreadful things. Well, yes, it is. But there is an enormous difference, from, difference between the typical Arab who has only ever known the Islamic faith that she or he was born into, on the one hand, and the rich man here in this parable. And the difference is this. They know nothing of the grace and mercy of God. The God of the Islamic religion is not a God of mercy. He is a capricious God. Uh, he is a God who demands our love in terms of obedience to strict law. And the typical Muslim is afraid of their God. Have a bit of sympathy, therefore. They're not taught about mercy or forgiveness. They have no hope for what will happen to them when they die. Why? Because they've never been taught that there is a hope. They've only been taught that if they try hard enough and if God is in a good mood on the day they die, and I'm not uh, being cynical there, they might stand a chance of going to heaven. Or if they indulge in jihad, then they will go to heaven. This is what they're taught. They know nothing of mercy. But the rich man did here, because he was a Jew in this story. And he knew the history. They were taught it from childhood. So you see, he is without excuse. In his life, the rich man was crying out from his heart, God, you owe me. And I owe nothing 
to you because I owe nothing to this poor man. I will leave him lying there in the gutter. Lazarus is the opposite. The cry of his heart is, I owe God. My faith and trust will be in him. I am perplexed, yes, I'm in dismay and anguish at my sorry state in life, but I cannot blame God. I can only blame the sin of man that has left the world in such a parlous state that half the world are rich and half are poor. And you may like to know that out there in the Middle East, even today, the gap between the rich and the poor is massively greater than it is in the West. And we see it. Uh, in the part of Amman where I live, and I live there because of my work, it's West Amman where the rich live. And you see it in their cars, for example. There's absolutely no need to own a huge 4 by 4 in Amman, but they do. It gives them status. Well, their religion doesn't give them any status, so it's not surprising that if they've got the money to afford it, they buy the biggest car they can afford, and then two sizes above that. But the other side of Amman is where the poor live, and I go there a lot. And I see it. But sadly, the 95% of the population of Amman who are born into the Muslim religion, it doesn't matter whether they're rich or poor, they hear nothing of grace and mercy, and they hear nothing of Jesus except to condemn him. What about us, sisters and brothers, friends here? tonight. That is the question this passage begs, doesn't it? I know we read a, a story like this and lots of questions come flooding in. Oh, is this what heaven is like? Oh, really, can they talk to each other? Dismiss all of those. This is just a story, and it's a story uh, invented by Jesus and set in the worldview that was predominant at the time. It's not the world of the Bible because the Old Testament part of our Bible ceases a few hundred years before Christ. But in the intervening time, from then up to Christ, uh, the Greek world, the, the then Western world, had infiltrated Judaism, huge philosophical speculation had overtaken, and lots of these ideas about what happened after death were current. Jesus doesn't buy into them, but he does set his story. That's all. So don't think this passage teaches us anything about heaven and hell. It doesn't, or the nature of them. Don't think that there is any conversation afterwards like we see here. Dismiss all of those. It's just a story with one point. And the point is this. Surely. Now tell me afterwards if you think I've got this wrong. Uh, but I'm not expecting a long queue. <laughs> but have a go if you want. <clears throat> the, story, the point surely is this. At what point should I make a decision about God and his mercy to me? And the point of the story is before I die. That's all. 
think about it now, is what this story told by Jesus is all about. Do not think that you can put off the question of your accountability towards God until you've shuffled off. Then it is too late. That, surely, is the one take-home point from this story. Think of... Uh, the the indignation that we feel when we hear a story like I told at the beginning of this man who's been taken to court for £100,000 for nothing. It's wrong. He has been wronged, that man, and we shake our fists. When we see people doing wrong uh, in our world today, we rage at it, don't we? Munich, uh, a terrible event, or an MP's office being entered against her will, possibly not quite so significant, but do not infer any party political point from me on this. The point is, have you heard the story? She feels that her privacy has been invaded and she has been wronged, and she doesn't like it. Now, do not try to think whether she is right or wrong not to like it. She thinks she has been wronged. And a lot of families in Munich have most certainly been wronged. None of us like being wronged. I hate being wronged. And my guess is you do as well. We think, how dare he or how dare she? Think how God looks upon us. He has offered us mercy. As Christians, we are utterly clear how God has offered us that mercy. In Christ, in his crucifixion on the cross, bearing our sins in himself so that we might go free. This is grace, the world, grace and mercy, forgiveness, compassion that the world has never seen at that level. But we saw it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your trust in me, God says, and you can taste my mercy. He has given it to us or offered it to us. How can we now shake our fists in the face of God and say, you owe me? Isn't it ridiculous, actually? The very thought of it is preposterous, isn't it? Think how many people live their lives thinking that they are owed The reality is, every one of us is a creature of the living God, given our lives by him. Every heartbeat that we take is granted to us by God. And when he withdraws permission for our hearts to beat again, they will stop. And then it's too late. An appeal, therefore, Firstly, possibly there are one or two uh, in our gathering tonight 
who have yet to make up their minds about the Lord Jesus. Please don't hear any condemnation from me. We were all in that position at one stage until eventually God won us and dragged us, as it were, kicking and screaming sometimes uh, until we so saw the reality of Christ that we couldn't help but put our faith and trust in him. We were all there once. But maybe there are one or two who have yet to make that choice. Make up your minds about Jesus, I beg you. And if things aren't clear enough to do that now, I'm absolutely certain this church runs Christianity Explored courses or the like. Yes, nods around. Yes, regularly, yes. And I'm sure there's one uh, that you can join. But those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ, let us not there uh, sit where we are or stand where I am self-satisfied. Because if you're like me, and I think you are, being an ordinary sinful human being, we still need to take this uh, to heart. Okay, God has won us, and we've placed our faith and trust in him. We know in our hearts what God has done for us in Christ, and we've accepted it, but we've still got lives to live. And even we Christians could live our lives thinking God owes me instead of thinking and living, I owe God. I owe God the service of my heart and life, my gifts, my enthusiasms. I don't say that all of us have got to end up being missionaries, wearing our pith helmets and starched short trousers. <coughs> I've yet to put mine on. <coughs> exactly how we give our lives uh, to God in serving him will vary amongst us, and there will be as many different answers as there are people in our gathering tonight. But could I plead with all of us, myself included, let's ask ourselves, how much has this beating heart of mine said to God recently, I owe you. I owe you all that I am. I know we've secured our future in heaven, or rather he has secured it for us, corrective there, but there are still many life decisions and priorities uh, that need transforming according to this principle. Shall we do it? Shall we resolve to do that tonight as we continue with our service and sing some more? praise songs, encouraging one another to believe all these great things about God. Let's do it. Whether we're not yet in the uh, fold of those who are trusting Christ, you get to it. Get on a Christianity Explored course. But the many others uh, who, like me, have some years behind us, or even just days behind us, doesn't matter, we're all the same, of faith in Christ, we owe him. We owe him everything. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we've thought of the tragedy of this rich man who went through his life with so much, and yet actually he had so little. He didn't have an eternity secured. And too late, he realized it was too late. May this not be true for us. 
And we pray that you would work by your Holy Spirit in our hearts tonight to review in mind, in heart, in will, in our lives what you have done for us that we might be able, like Abraham did so many thousand years ago, trust you. May he be our father in this sense, that we follow him, that we might trust you and live our lives for you. For your name's sake, amen.